Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. I found out a new word just yesterday. And the word is repartnered. I'd never heard that before. I'd heard of people separating. I'd heard of people divorcing. I'd heard of people remarrying. I'd heard everything I thought, and then I heard the word repartnered. <laughs> Let's talk to our guest about that and the story behind the word repartnered. And the story is that Sophie Gregoire Trudeau has repartnered. And uh, that is because the now estranged oh, former, no, estranged wife, still the wife of the prime minister, Justin Trudeau, apparently has a new partner in her life, hence repartnered. And that new partner, the repartnered partner, is in a legal case in court with his former partner. Trying to think of what the term would be for that, the new one, the new term. And the ex-wife, former wife, former spouse, is challenging her former husband, the repartnered partner, in, in court. Are you laughing, Scott? <laughs> you need a program to keep How up. How am I doing? How am <laughs> yeah, I doing, Scott? You're doing well. You're doing How well. am I doing? Okay, let me, I'm not finished. So the former spouse is in court challenging her former spouse, the repartnered partner of Sophie Gregoire Trudeau, and I'm not sure whether it's Trudeau anymore or not. Anyway, so the the ex-wife is concerned about the security of her kids, too much attention being paid to the children, if there's a security detail around the former prime minister's wife, and she's concerned about uh, what's been said in, in court and what is supposed to be happening with her kids. It's becoming extremely confusing. So, uh, first of all, Scott, had you heard the term repartnered before, well, uh, or is that a new have, one on you? No, no, I have to say, Roy, that... Uh there's no legal definition that I'm aware of that says repartnering, and then they have a picture of Sophie Gregoire in the in the dictionary, or in any legal any legal terminology whatsoever. Apparently, the whole repartnering comes from the fact that unmarked RCMP cars are outside the condominium where the good doctor lives, and apparently. The the suggestion or the allegation is that the only reason that the RCMP cars are unmarked cars are parked outside the, the good doctor's condominium is the fact that maybe uh, Sophie is 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 there with the good doctor. So that again, she hasn't been named in any of the material that Anna, who is uh, that's the name of the uh, the lady who's married to the doctor. Uh, there's no specific name, just a high profile individual, and everyone else basically. Says it must be her, must be Sophie. But what's kind of missing? A couple things that are missing. The doctor separated apparently in 2020, moved into his condo in 2021, and now and and we don't know how long this repartnering apparent repartnering has taken place. Because remember, Justin and Sophie apparently separated long before the separation agreement. Everyone heard about the separation agreement. Everyone's going, holy smokes. This just happened. Well, apparently, they separated, you know, many months before the actual agreement happened. So, but in any situation like this, regardless of what your political affiliations are, 
it's just it's a sad story for the children. It's it's yeah. the children who ultimately yeah. suffer in these yes, these situations. You know, uh, Mr. Trudeau has a 16 year old, I think. Yeah, yeah. And there's a 14 year old. Mm -hmm. But there's also a nine year old. Yes, there is. And that's yeah. that's that's the child that I would have the greatest concern for. And that child is the one you would know better than I because you are in court handling very difficult divorce cases on a regular well, basis. But that, but the nine-year-old is the one I'm concerned about, Scott. Well, well, and the thing is, the, the thing is, Anna, who, remember, the doctor and Anna have two children. We don't know if they're boy, girl, what their genders are. We don't know what their ages are. But what, what Anna is trying to do is to keep those children away from Sophie. In other words, she's saying to her ex-husband, the doctor, you can obviously see Sophie, but you are not to allow our children to have a relationship with this woman. And this is a potential stepchildren to her children. So she's, she, she's sort of drawn the line and said, I don't want this to happen. And she's using security and privacy as two reasons. And that would mean every celebrity divorce, every child in a relationship would not be able to establish a new relationship because of all the celebrity and all the, the publicity, which is so that's that, that's the sad part. So and we don't know, Roy, whether her two children have already developed a relationship with with, with um, Sophie Gregoire. We don't know uh, what the, what the state of that is. But she's claiming that she had this agreement with her, the good doctor that he said he wasn't going to permit that contact from happening. So, that's what, so that's I'm sure, though, I'm sure, that. Scott, I'm sure, though, that in your many years of experience dealing with family <laughs> law and, and, and uh, divorce cases, you've run into this before where one spouse doesn't want the children to have a relationship <laughs> with, the, yeah. with, the, with the old yeah. spouse's new partner, repartner. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, no, that's, uh, this is not unusual or exceptional under any circumstances. But, How does it, so but let, me ask you, let me ask you this. Yeah. How, yeah. Is there a template? How yeah. do these yeah. things usually get yeah. resolved yeah. before the oh, judge? Okay, a couple, a couple of things to know about that. Number one, the court, the, the judge, and uh, the court needs to absolutely prioritize what's in the best interests of the children. And you're going, so it's not the best interest of, of any parent or any adult. It's the best interest of the children. That takes priority. So the judge has to look at all the various factors. For example, if the children are of an age where they can sort of say, look, this is what I would like, the children's wishes need to be taken into consideration. And what about the child's relationship with this other person? That's taken into consideration. And what about the ability of the person to take care of those children? That, that's taken into consideration. There's a whole range of factors, but it's not the best interests of, of, of the spouses that's important. It's only the children. And now we, there's two children. We don't know how old they are. They're probably not very old. No, I don't think they're very old, um, but nothing about the children themselves. And again, will the court look to see what those children want? Well, I don't know whether they have a relationship with Ms. Gregoire already. Do they even know about her? And, and what's that going to be like? Because if it's a permanent relationship, if they're saying that the, Ms. Gregoire has repartnered, using their terminology, with this doctor, well, then it would take, I think, a massive uh, uh, effort on anyone's part to say it's not in the best interest of these two children to have a relationship with their, their new stepmom. I mean, it, 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 to me, it, it, it's a, but, but this, you know, Roy, this does happen for any one of a number of reasons, but it's the children who end up suffering.
Yeah, so this is my next question. I wasn't trying to make fun of the of Sophie Gregoire or the good doctor. No. But it's the term repartner which led me on that wild goose goose chase. Yeah. By the way, all my listeners heard so far is I'm talking to somebody named Scott. So, so <laughs> let, okay. let me be a little more let me be a little more precise here. My guest is Vancouver family lawyer and media commentator, no. Scott Taylor. Of the Taylor Law Group, actually, you're not in, you're not in Vancouver directly, are you? No, I, I'm. I know my office is in, in Langley, just out of just outside of Vancouver. <laughs> okay, so it's Scott Taylor, the family lawyer from Langley, British Columbia. I'm talking to very good lawyer. Oh, well, thank you, thank uh, so, you, right? Well, you are, uh, and you've handled some quite challenging cases, and we've talked uh, about them on this program. So let me ask you this then: Sure. sure Do you sure. believe? That given the celebrity status of Sophie Gregoire Brackets Trudeau, mm-hmm. yep. do you believe that this particular case will be handled as any other case would be handled before family court? Or will it be handled differently? Will it be handled more expeditiously than other cases simply because of the <laughs> principles involved and because of the notoriety of the case? Well, 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 it, it'll be, I, I don't know how expeditiously it will be handled, but I, I can guarantee it will be handled as privately as possible. <laughs> so, I mean, there, there's, there's various um, non-court related means to resolve disputes, family issues that don't require going to court. So if, if, if I was in any way involved, which I'm not, is, is there a, there's a process called mediation. In other words, get everybody in the room, or maybe not in the same room, but in different rooms, you can mediate it through a private process. So there's no, it's confidential. It's strictly, uh, uh, again, secret, confidential, and you hammer out a deal. That's that's the way to do it, and you don't have to file. You don't have to file that deal, that agreement. That's just a, a private arrangement. It's not going to be filed in court necessarily, and yeah, you try and resolve it. So let me ask you this: But hasn't Anna, as you call her? Yeah, she's 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 going for divorce. She's going for Anna divorce. Ramonda, right? Yeah. Yep. She yep. she has requested a court order. Yes. To 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 make sure the privacy and protection of her two <laughs> oh, yeah. children are, oh, are, are assured. Yep. So so Scott, she's already in court, isn't she? Well, well, she is. I, I'm I'm just making some suggestions to, to to try and kind of dampen down the 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 contentious issues in this matter for everybody's sake. Because you know, Scott, these these cases have a history of feeding on themselves and becoming far bigger than they need to be simply because of the principles involved. Make it a bigger story, so everybody says, "Oh, there's a lot of smoke here. Let's check the fire." Oh, absolutely. I mean, when you see unmarked RCMP vehicles outside somebody's place, uh, you're going to jump to assumptions right off the bat. So this is going to remain a high-profile matter until it gets resolved. How long it's going to take resolved? It shouldn't put it this way. It shouldn't take any quicker than any other family case because when it involves children, all children are equal. There are no uh, you know, preferences provided to children just because they happen to be children of a of a celebrity or high profile individual, as the case may be. So, but he, here's where things are going to get really contentious, right? Because there was some discussion that the mother of these two children might decide to go back to Argentina <laughs> with the kids. And well, that, that would do it. 
that that would that would that would rise that it would rise to a, at a whole different a whole different level. I don't think she's going to be successful with this application that apparently she's bringing to keep her husband from introducing these uh, these these you know their children to yeah. to uh, to Sophie. And if they're repartnered. How do you do that? <laughs> How do you- now it's it's become a word that's commonplace in our it, language. It, it Scott, Scott, stop, <laughs> yeah. stop. Yeah. I have to ask him one last question. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Does the prime minister get pulled into this issue, whether he wants to be or not? He is, I am sure, thankfully removed as far as possible from anything uh, involving this. I mean, these are, remember, his kids are indirectly involved in this whole affair. His kids are going to be impacted by ever by whatever happens with their mother and this other individual. So has he heard about it? Is he aware of it? Is it is it troubling oh, to so. him? I would think, you know what, when he's not otherwise governing the country, I'm sure he's he's concerned about this, you know, okay. and again, okay. it's, uh, it's all about the kids. Thank you. He's, that's what he does. Eh? He governs the country. Thanks for letting me know. <laughs> I always appreciate the commentary, the good uh, conversations. Thank you, my friend. Good you're very welcome. Scott. Take care, Roy. Renting a home is a real challenge now in this country. And the most expensive place in the country is Vancouver. Rental prices are the highest. A one-bedroom apartment has reached an average, as I understand it, of more than $3,000 a month. Two-bedroom apartments, a lot more. Robert Patterson is a lawyer and tenant advocate at the Tenant Resource and Advisory Center in Vancouver, a.k.a. TRAC, and he joins us on the Roy Green Show. Robert, thank you very much for the time. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, so a one-bedroom apartment, on average, costs $3,000 per month. 16% increase in one year. So I have to ask you, is there any real tenant protection under law in British Columbia? That's a great question. I think you really get to the crux of it. I mean, when you see these kind of rent increases year over year for vacant units, what it's kind of showing us is that our current protections are insufficient. So we have a... a for tenants that are in existing tenancies, there are limits on how much rent can increase year over year. But what that does is also is create a profit incentive for landlords to try and evict people. And we hear constantly from tenants who are terrified of losing their home, knowing that you know if they've been there for even one, two, three years, but especially if they've been there long term, they tend to be seniors on fixed incomes, the loss of a home it sort of equates to the loss of being able to have really any home in their community. And it's gotten to the extent where it might be any home in beyond their community to their city maybe even the province. So it's a, absolutely a huge thing tenants are terrified about. And the pro- on, on layer on top of that, the fact that we don't have adequate protection for evictions, in particular, landlord use or no-fault evictions, which you know recent data shows comprises 85% of our evictions in BC. We're the eviction capital of Canada, and almost all of our, the vast majority of tenants are losing out their homes for no fault of their own, and often just so landlords can flip the units and make more money. So how does the landlord do that legally? How does the landlord in British Columbia say, I want those people out so I can get people in who are going to pay me more? 
Yeah. So, I mean, interestingly, there's probably not a legal way to do it insofar if they're using a no-fault eviction because a landlord is required to be acting in good faith. They have to have a good faith intention to use the unit for the, the purpose that's stated on the eviction notice. So, for example, if they're saying, I'm going to move my parent in, they have to truly intend for that parent to move in. Uh, and then subsequently, the parent actually has to move in or else the tenant may be able to claim compensation. The couple problems with that, though. First, if, you know, the, the eviction does go through, either because the tenant doesn't dispute the eviction notice, perhaps because they're concerned that if they lose, they may be only given 48 hours to move, as that is the residential tenancy branch's often standard practice, um, then if the parent does move, doesn't move in, they're entitled to 12 months of rent as compensation. Uh, but there's so much profit to be made, and honestly, the more vulnerable the tenant, the lower the rent, the more possible profit and the less compensation for that tenant, um, that it's really not doing an adequate job of disincentivizing landlords from taking that route. So the word but is greed. Yes, I, I mean, I would agree. Uh, there, uh, ultimately, these wave of evictions, the things that are challenging and pushing tenants out of their homes, is uh, in many, many cases, uh, greed, the desire to make more money to maximize profit from an investment. Okay, so what might it cost me if I were to move to Vancouver? What might it cost me, <clears throat> excuse me, to rent a comfortable but not exclusive two-bedroom apartment in the city? What would it cost? It's very challenging to say. I mean, one problem I think many people run into is simply finding anything that is available. Um, and oftentimes that pushes people into sort of precarious housing situations. People have to find roommates to live with or find an existing tenant who needs roommates. And those living situations may not be as covered by the Residential Tenancy Act. There may be fewer protections there. Um, but, you know, if you can get into one, I think the, the recent data shows that vacant units are looking around $4,000. But I think what we've seen now is like one of the reasons these prices are pushed so high is because for years, the existing unaffordability has already pushed people into more and more creative situations, dividing up rental units between multiple tenants, you know, putting four people in a one bedroom or four or five people in a two bedroom or you know, what have you, um, people renting uh, parts of dens or solariums. I mean, I think the signs have been there for a long time that the approach we're taking to housing isn't working by sort of pretending that we can, that the market will deliver the housing we need if only we tweak some policy levers. Uh, that has shown to be not to not be the case. That and that approach, if we continue it, is just going to lead us further and further, you know, on the road we're going on. We need a, a market departure from that. We need a massive investment in non-market housing that hasn't really happened since probably the early '90s, when the federal government pivoted out of house, pivoted out of the housing game. There are some promising signs that we're trying to get back into that model, providing more non-market housing, supports for co-op housing, social housing, non-profit housing. Um, but it's, you know, we're, we're coming at this. The building's already on fire. It's already, we're already in the midst of yeah. a five-alarm yeah. fire. Um, it, we need to bring the hoses out, not the buckets. Uh, so we need yeah. drastic support uh, as fast as possible. Robert, if you're talking $4,000 a month for a two-bedroom apartment, you're talking fifty grand a year. So people who earn 60000 this is after-tax money, people who earn 60000 or 70000 pre-tax, out of the question. Absolutely. I mean, I think we're sort of to the point where I'm not sure who could afford to, first off, uh, and who can afford to rent on their own, um, given these prices. It really is only very high level of income earner. And second, uh, it's hard to imagine uh, people who can live 
on the uh, sorry with waking minimum wage. Anyone making anywhere close oh, to yeah. minimum wage, there's just nothing livable, unfortunately, in oh. in our you know, pretty much. It's and it's honestly not just Vancouver. If you look across the province, even smaller communities are impacted by this. Um, you know, it's, we don't get the same eye you know uh, eyebrow raising numbers as you might get in Vancouver, um, but the rate rising year over year has continued to outpace rent control, uh, the rent control stable, rent stabilization um, set in the Residential Tenancy Act. It's outpaced inflation. I mean, what does this really mean? It means a larger and larger proportion of really all the wealth generated in the province is going into the pockets of landlords. And, you know, some some of those landlords are individuals who, you know, have been trying to claw their way into the housing market and they have a basement suite in their, in their building uh, and they're, you know, just trying to make that work. Um, but a lot of landlords, you know, probably the majority of landlords are people who own apartment buildings. Buildings. You know, if you're a family, if you're a small family, but you happen to own an apartment building in BC, you're probably a multimillionaire. Um, if they also include larger companies, they include real estate investment trusts that are effectively in pooled investment funds that are investing in housing. And really, the only thing they care about is the bottom line. They want to see a stable and increasing return on investment year over year. And that need, that desire to continue to see not just healthy returns, but growing returns is what's really putting the screws in this whole situation. Yeah. So um, today, and I, it, sorry, but, but today, oh, if I were looking to maximize uh, investment in Vancouver, I wouldn't put my money in the market. I'd put it into purchasing rental properties. For sure. And I mean, I think that's honestly a problem, right? Like on the one yeah, hand, is. we try to incentivize investment in housing. But what does that really mean? It's not really led to the No, you're dealing with people. You're dealing with human beings. And Absolutely a roof over their heads. Squeezing. What can you, final question for you, what can you do for the, uh, for renters in distress or track? Right. So a, a tenant who's facing a potential, you know, a landlord threatening to raise their rent or, uh, or to evict them if they don't agree to a rent increase, or indeed a tenant who gets an eviction notice is free to reach out to track. We provide legal information and our tenant information line at 1-800-665-1185. If you go to our website at tenants.bc.ca, we have a lot of legal information as well. We do offer uh, limited legal representation to tenants going to the residential tenancy branch. Mm-hmm. I, I'll say that, you know, I've been at track for the last five years. The demand for our service has probably at least doubled over that time. Um, so we can't help everyone, but we do our best to provide as much legal information and representation okay. as possible. Um, and yeah, it's it's uh, in the, t- the time when we are living through, a, you know, we yeah. live in the eviction capital of Canada, both as a province. It's not a pro- that's not a good title to have. That is really not a good title to have. Your girlfriend, she's upset. She's going off about something that you said. Cause she doesn't get your humor like I do. I'm in my room, it's a typical Tuesday night. I'm listening to the kind of music she doesn't like. And she'll never know your story like I do. But she wears shorts. I, uh, I, I, I feel like I shouldn't be interrupting. People get mad at me for interrupting Taylor Swift, but I have to. Because this is a talk show, and we're going to talk about Taylor Swift. We're going to do that now. And we'll do it with our good friend, Eric Alper. The, that Eric Alper. 16-time Juno Award winner, six-time nominee for Publicist of the Year during the Canadian Music Week, who's worked with some of the biggest and most important artists of our time. That Eric Alper dot com. How are you? 
I'm good. Eric, what makes Taylor Swift so so special? Um, you know, uh, or is that a dumb at question? At the end of it all, it has to be the songs. That's that's the starting and end point for all of it. Just the fact that she has exceptional songwriting skills and always her available uh, her the ability for her at the time of twelve years old to start writing lyrics on MySpace and connecting with total strangers around the world um, who all feel the same way that she did she just is able to craft really emotional relatable and often autobiographical lyrics it set a new standard not just for women songwriters but for sensitive guys too to you know write their songs in complete isolation away from everybody else and then perform them in front of 60,000 people that all say, yes, I'm feeling that too. And then, of course, just brilliant, absolutely astonishing marketing ability to give people what they want and sometimes give the people what they don't even know that they want. Yeah, I was wondering whether my question was as dumb a question as uh, in the 1960s asking what makes the Beatles so special or in the 70s Springsteen or Billy Joel. And Billy Joel actually likened uh, Taylor Swift to the Beatles. Yeah, as I as I understand it. So, so what is yeah, it? absolutely. You know the the euphoria and the absolute um, bonkers that's going on right now with Taylor Swift's Eras tour. It's going to be the music industry's first billion dollar tour and then some. Right now, Elton John um, grossed about nine hundred thirty million dollars of his Goodbye Yellow Brick Road tour that lasted five years. Of course, two of the years were kind of canceled due to COVID. Um, but, you know, this, she's going to surpass that billion-dollar mark um, quite early in this tour. And then from then on in, it's anybody's guess. But right now, on average, each person going to a show so far this year has spent $1,800 Canadian on Taylor Swift, whether it's tickets, hotels, gas, food, parking, alcohol, um, merchandise. So you total up 55,000 tickets available at each of her six Toronto shows, that 330,000 tickets that's available. Each person is spending $2,000. That's $616 million worth of revenue that's, that's going to be generated just from these six shows alone. No wonder Trudeau tweeted and begged her to come to this country. Yeah. Well, so am I correct? 31 million people registered for tickets? Yeah, because it was opened up worldwide. And so, you know, part of... Sometimes when, when major... Artists announce shows. Um, they put a geo block on buying tickets, which means that if you are not from that city or state or province or country, you're linked up with that credit card's address, and so you're not going to be able to buy tickets. It seems that that wasn't the case for this one. So there were people around the world that are happily willing to put Toronto in their travel plans, just like they were when you were in, you know, in Winnipeg traveling to Minneapolis or Vancouver checking out. The the Seattle show. There were people that were coming halfway around the world for these for for these shows. It's something that really hasn't been seen probably since Michael Jackson's Thriller tour. But before then, it actually might be Beatlemania, and there was four of them. Taylor Swift, only Taylor Swift. Yeah, I remember Beatlemania. I can't even say it. I was there. <laughs> did, did you see them in Toronto? No, I uh, I had an opportunity to go into the uh, hotel room. In Montreal at the Queen Elizabeth Hotel, when yeah. uh, John and Yoko recorded Give Peace a Chance, and I, uh, I, a couple of the guys from the radio station went. I was in my 
I guess it was in my early 20s, 20, 20 or 21 years of age. And I had about enough so of Lennon and, 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 uh, and, you know, and Yoko Ono, and I didn't go. But another guy who went with me is the guy who's playing the drums, i.e. pounding the door. So, <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh, well, people want to know how the, how the, how the process goes. I, uh, my mom uh, said, sent this to me. I tried to get some tickets for my daughter, but got waitlisted. Meanwhile, some people who entered multiple email addresses got multiple codes. How's it work? Yeah, it, it's really based on Ticketmaster's algorithm. And, and I know people get frustrated by Ticketmaster, but they have to understand that it's nothing more than a nameless, faceless website. Um, they work alongside, of course, with Live Nation, the promoter, or AEG, the other big promoter around the world, along with the artists, to devise a system to ensure that there are as few computer bots gathering up tickets as possible and ending up on third-party websites. Um, the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, with 30x million people that are trying to all get a code, um, nobody's quite sure how many codes were given out. In fact, nobody knows um, how many tickets were on sale during the verified pre-sale. It could have been 20 pairs of tickets. It could have been 20,000 tickets. Um, they keep that information close to the vest. And really, they don't have a, a, any right to give it to people. Um, we don't know how many bags of lettuce there are in the storeroom at the grocery store. So, you know, the price rise and falls based on supply and demand. Same thing with cars. Airline tickets we know because we can see how many seats are available provided that the airline actually is truthful and tells us. We don't know that about concert tickets. And in fact, in most cases, um, the, the promoters and the artists hold back tickets um, even well after the on-sale date for the general public just to add more buzz and more hype. Make sure that it's sold out. Make sure that people have a case of fear of missing out and will pay double to go and see it. That's all part of the market. Game. It's all part of the buzz of creating excitement. Um, so when people online, and I've seen it, say, you know, I don't know anybody that's got a code. Well, it basically comes down to one in every 400 Eric. people perhaps got a code. Eric. I don't know 400 people, so maybe I know six. Eric. They try to weed it down as much as possible. Eric. Yeah. There's a young man across the glass from me, from me right now in the other studio. He's the technical producer. His sister got two tickets going through this process, paid 150 each. Amazing. Yeah, I'll say. Uh, that's amazing. They should go in and buy a lottery ticket so if they win, they can now afford better seats to Taylor Swift. <laughs> I see that some of the resellers are, the tickets have reached close to 20 grand each. Yeah. Which, and that's U.S. That's amazing. Can yeah, we just spend I, I, a couple of minutes talking about Robbie Robertson? Yeah. Just uh, such a huge loss, you know. Yeah. I mean, has to be up there with the top three influential artists to ever come out of this country. That's yes. for sure. I'm right up there with Neil Young and Joni Mitchell. And, yeah. you know, Robbie Robertson was the band. Um, he was the one that drove them to success. He was the one that introduced the band to Bob Dylan, which changed music when Bob Dylan went electric and, and changed rock music and folk music forever. He was the driving force and he broke up the band because he just got so tired of the infighting and the drugs and alcohol problems that were going through the band um, and uh, went on to a huge successful 
career, not only solo-wise, but also the the relationship that he had with Martin Scorsese, making music yeah, for his yeah. films like, you know, Raging Bull and The Departed, and just such a such a sad loss all around. But you know, as always, the music is there for us forever. And uh, he and his band, of course, uh, back to Ronnie Hawkins. They were known as the the Hawks uh, then yeah. before they were introduced to Bob Dylan when as you said he wanted to begin electrifying music uh, Robbie Robertson was one of my first interviews oh was he really yeah yeah how old were you? How old was he? Uh, I would have been, I think it would have been 1980, so I was yeah. uh, I was probably, was I 32 or something? Was he as cool as I think he was? Oh, yeah. He was terrific. Yeah. Absolutely terrific. Yeah. Lots of time. You know, I find that with a lot of musicians. They're really, they're really cool. They're, they're well-spoken. Uh, they have their wits about them. They know what they're, they know, they're driven. They know what they want to accomplish. Right. And I just had that sense from Robbie Robertson. I couldn't believe he was 80. I, yeah. I couldn't believe he was sick. Um, uh, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. apparently he was sick for a long time, yeah. um, and uh, was a shock to me. But you know, that's what happens when you kind of keep it close, close at hand. But yeah, I think he was one of these guys that was just cool from 16 years old yep. onwards. Mick Jagger, I can't get no satisfaction when that song first came out. There was a story that ran in, uh, I think it was Rolling Stone magazine, one of their earliest editions, Would You Let Your Daughter Marry a Rolling Stone? And that had a lot to do with them uh, becoming famous because they were really on the fringes of acceptable. Uh, you may find that hard to believe now, but they were on the fringes of what was acceptable in, in those days. So, uh, now, Mick Jagger's, what, like 82? Andy Warhol, the famous artist, internationally famous, famous doesn't even do it, um, artist, created a portrait of Mick Jagger in his unique style, signed by both Warhol and Jagger. And it's going to hit the auction block at Cowley Abbott and Toronto's live auction of important Canadian and international art next Wednesday at 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And it's expected, or the estimate is, that the painting is going to fetch somewhere between $135,000 and $175,000. You got me? But somewhere between $135,000 and $175,000. Do you have one of those in your house? Do you have something in your house? Do you think it could be valuable? We're going to talk, talk about that with you in a bit. But joining us on the program now is Rob Cowley. He's the president of Cowley Abbott, and he's a Canadian art specialist, and you can find them at cowleyabbott.ca. Rob, thank you very much for coming on the program. It's a pleasure, Roy. Thanks for having me. How did you get a, how did you get a hold of this uh, Warhol thing? I'd like it, but I, I can't spill 135 to 175K for it. Sorry. No, I'm the same, quite honestly, personally. I'm happy to spend time with it while it's in the gallery. And uh, we had a client reach out to us. We actually sold a set of four portraits by Warhol in the spring, four portraits of Queen Elizabeth. 
and those sold for just shy of a million dollars, those portraits. And so Warhol's work has been performing, has always performed exceedingly well, um, certainly the last 30 years. But um, at auction in Canada in recent years, these, these types of portraits have done that performed very well. Uh, we get attention for these not only from Canadians from coast to coast, but also from the American, the Asian and the, um, the European market as well. Um, so an inter- internationally renowned artist, of course. Is this U.S. dollars or Canadian dollars? Uh, it's Canadian dollars. Oh, so good. We are, yeah. And so, um, so yes, well, well, we do publish everything in Canadian yeah, dollars. Being, that's right. How, how does it work? If people get online and get involved in the auction, how do, what do they have to do? How, how does it work? How do, you get, well, how, they, do you, how do you become the winning bid? Well, there's a few ways. You can bid online in real time, and you just, set, you just go to, as you said, cowleyappet.ca. You can register. You can also bid by telephone, um, and uh, so a, a staff member here guides you through that process. And you can also, if you're in Toronto, of course, you can also come and attend, and we welcome spectators as well at the Globe and Mail Center this Wednesday, uh, 4 p.m. and 7 p.m., two sessions here in Toronto. So how do you, Rob, how do you establish the the likely, how do you establish the likely value, the estimated value? This one, again, is between $135,000 and $175,000. It could go for much more than that, of course. But how do you establish that range? We, well, we're, uh, why we're looking at, with, with a Warhol works like this, these are screen prints. And so there's multiples of this. And so you're looking at what other similar works have fetched and what other portraits have fetched in recent years. So you are very much looking at the auction market in recent years. But generally, whenever you're valuing a work of art, of course, you're looking at the artist. Um, You're looking at the subject matter. Is Is it something that they're best celebrated for? In this case, Warhol is highly celebrated for these kind of pop. These uh, pop um, portraits, um, the size, the medium, whether it's a print or a painting, um, but also its history. You know, if it's been in a special collection, if it's been reproduced in books, um, ownership history can be important as well. Um, so all of those factors go into us coming coming up with a, with an auction estimate. So, so would this be considered a pure work of art, or is it a collectible, or is it a combination of the two? I would say the combination of the two in many ways. Warhol is a bit like that because. You know, with Warhol, we sometimes in the art world, we sometimes lose sight of the fact that that he had such an impact on culture in general, not just on the art world. You know, most of us recognize his portraits of, you know, Marilyn Monroe and Liz Taylor and even just the style, the, the, the pop art style. He was, um, you know, he made it very famous. And even the quotes, I mean, even talking about, you know, the 15 minutes of fame, all of those aspects, you know, much like even when we look at the Mona Lisa, it, it, it transcends art. It's more than just art. It's also very much a piece of culture. And so you're correct to say that, that in many ways as well, Warhol is, is very much um, a, a not only interest uh, for art collectors, but also collectible um, uh, um, people as well. So I, I know you're one of the most highly respected experts when it comes to Canadian art. Uh, but let me just wander off uh, off the uh, beaten track here for a moment mm-hmm. and ask you about the value of collectibles. Uh, if, if there's a, is there a line somewhere between art and collectible? And we just talked about the Warhol piece, but are collectibles becoming more ex, uh, more valuable? And how do you establish what uh, what what? In other words, how would you decide that you would take on auctioning an item? One of my listeners might have and said, "Boy, I, I think this is worth some money." Mm-hmm. I mean, it really comes down to the difference between I would say art and collectible is. If the, you know, a work of art is typically being created by the creator with that purpose in mind as a work of art. A collectible, as you know, could be, many times it can be, you know, it could be a guitar owned by a musician, which of course Eric Clapton. created. 
Yeah, exactly. And I mean, and that, and it's funny during uh, during COVID, you know, the, the collectible market, just like the art market, really moved into the stratosphere because so many people had time to focus upon, not only focus on beautifying their surroundings and also maybe selling what they own if they have something very special, um, but also reconnecting with their passion of collecting. And so you find that the luxury market and the collectible market with the art market. All of those markets together have really taken off. And so the difference, uh, in my opinion, tends to be um, the, the purpose of creation. If something was created as a work of art, then it stands in the art market. Whereas something was an object that maybe has a connection that makes it valuable, whether it's ownership, whether it's rarity. Um, it could be a toy that, of course, very few exist, or it could be a hockey card that very few exist anymore. Those weren't created necessarily. You know, you think about Wayne Gretzky's rookie cards from the 1970s. You know, I remember having that card when I was very young and, you know, putting it in the spokes of my bike because <laughs> it wasn't viewed as it was, you know, yeah, 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 flexibility yeah. to it, but it yeah. was for fun. Yeah. So, so I told the story earlier this morning on the Alberta Morning News. I, I uh, appear with my friend Kevin Usselman, who's the host on the program, every Saturday and Sunday morning for a few minutes. We have some fun. We talk about the program. And I told him that in 1991, I was at, at the um, Cops Coliseum, as it was still then called in Hamilton, for the 1991 Canada Cup. And it was the last time the Soviets played as a team. And it was the last pre-tournament game. And Wayne Gretzky scored on the Russian Soviets in, I think, the first, well, certainly the first couple of minutes of the game. And they, and they, they went back to center ice, faced off with that puck, and one of the Soviet players got it, and then he passed it forward, tried to anyway, to one of his teammates, but it hit the skate of Mark Tenorti, a Canadian player, came over the, eye, over the glass, and it was headed for my friend who was sitting just on my right, who was staring at his program. And I, I thought, this is going to hit him. So reflexively, I put my hand up, and it hit my hand flat, and I just in one motion put the puck in my pocket. And all the players instinctively, you know, you follow the puck, right? Whenever it goes somewhere. So they all looked over, and Mike Keenan was the coach, and he looked over. Keenan gives me two thumbs up. Some guy behind me, Leatherlung guy, yells, hey, Keenan, put him in net. Uh, <laughs> no. But here I had this Canada Cup puck, and it had the Canada Cup logo. It was signed by Alan Eagleson. It was obviously not a real, not his signature. It was a... What do you call it? Stamped on it. And it had the logo of the of the Canada Cup. Would something cause and I gave it away. And I know my friend Jeff is listening right now. So 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 he's got it. Is it worth any money? It would. I mean, say no. Would, say no. Say no. Yeah, no, absolutely not. Just a piece <laughs> Good. of rubber. Good. <laughs> <laughs> but you find what's really interesting now about sports collectibles is is the certification of a lot of them, of a lot of it, and authentication. Right. And so, if something like that occurs, then you very much, you know, you need paperwork with it. Sometimes you need photographs with it. Sometimes you need, you know, many times now with autographed uh, pictures and things, autographed sticks, they'll actually have a certificate with a photograph. You know, and it's very important. And of course, in the art industry, it's it's crucial as well. Of course, authentication. Yeah. Uh, and all of that, but um, but yeah, no, I mean, I mean, I think you probably remember the the, the home run balls with uh, Mark McGuire and Sammy. Sosa, oh, of course, you know, yeah, fifteen years ago, and it was as it was, and that was really, I think, in many ways, the dawn of that of, of that collectible craze in the sports world. Was there was as much speculation about what the ball would be worth when it finally, when the records were broken, as there was the the chase of the of the record itself. Mm -hmm. So, what would this puck be worth? 
it's really hard to say. Two, two bucks, I, I mean, five bucks. I, it probably, I mean, my feeling would be it's somewhere. It might be somewhere in the hundreds of dollars, maybe even the thousands of dollars. It really depends what the market has been recently for something similar. Okay, I'm and that is it. something that stands out. I'm going to get it back, Rob. You should. I'm going to get it back. <laughs> no freebies. That's right. <laughs> I'm going to get it back. What else? What, what's the major item that you're auctioning off on Wednesday? What's the What's the star item? Wednesday, I mean, it's a real mix. We have uh, fantastic work by the Group of Seven. Uh, we have work by Tom Thompson. We have an incredible private collection of, of, a, of historical Canadian art on offer as well. Major works by Jack Bush as well as Jean-Paul Riappel. So it really is, a sh- and Emily Carr as well, it really is a showcase of, of Canadian historical and post-war art, but then also fantastic works by international artists like Warhol and Roy Lichtenstein as well. So actually, if you, uh, any, any listener can go to cowleyabbott.ca and take a look through, through, through the auction that's taking place this Wednesday. All right. Thanks so much for spending the time with us. Really appreciate it. It's a pleasure, right? Thanks so much. All the best. You know, we've talked about artificial intelligence with, among others, Professor Joshua Bengio from the University of Montreal, who's considered internationally to be the godfather or one of the godfathers of AI. And we spoke with the professor about the uh, existential threat that AI may pose to the continued existence of the human race. He doesn't discount it. He does not discount it. There was a letter written and signed by the likes of, uh, I know a lot of people don't like him, Bill Gates. And whoever that guy is who owns Twitter or X, uh, what's his name? You're supposed to tell me. Go on, tell me. Thank you. They're looking at me in the studio like, what the hell do you want? Elon Musk, I just had a brain fade. Yeah, this is your job to help me out when I get stuck on an intersection. You've got to push me to the curb. Yeah, so over 100 uh, luminaries internationally wrote this letter that AI poses an existential threat to the human race. Because machine uh, intelligence, it, it doesn't know, it doesn't care, it doesn't have emotions. It just says, this was one of the scenarios. Okay, the world's in trouble. There are pandemics, there are wars. There are all sorts of things going on that are a threat to the, uh, the continued you know, existence of the world. Now, who's the problem? And AI may say, oh, we know, I know, it's humans. So let's get rid of them. And, uh, and this is an actual scenario that's been put forward. It says, we'll create a virus that they cannot fight. And that's one of the scary scenarios that they've talked about. But AI has certainly slithered, there's my word again, into mainstream media. Sports Illustrated being accused of the creation of fake stories written by fake humans. And as I said, that takes us back to the concerns about fake news. And uh, so what do, we do? what do we do about this? What are the issues? So many news organizations have actually now talked about what they will do as far as artificial intelligence modules or options are concerned about how they'll incorporate artificial intelligence into the writing and delivery of news. I was also, also told last night, I was looking for the program actually online, I couldn't find it. But there is a, uh, I'm told there's at least one program, radio program in the United States that's all AI. The host is AI. The topics are, I guess the topics are relevant, news stories. But the host is AI. And then they run contests. They call in contests. And the AI machine 
actually interacts with the with the callers. You can't tell. I'm told you can't tell that it's not a human. They actually tell you you got the right answer or the wrong answer, and if you've got a prize where you can pick it up, it's uh, it's a game changer. Professor Jane Kirtley, our good friend, professor of media ethics on the law, Silha professor of media ethics on the law at the University of Minnesota, joins us. Jane, this is happening so fast, and I said to my <laughs> I said to my my buddies Tom and Matt across the glass, I don't care if AI is an existential threat to humanity. I care if it's an existential threat to broadcasting. But it's it's not a laughing matter. But it, what what's your what's your immediate or visceral non professorial response to what's going on? Well, as a confirmed Luddite who loathes <laughs> new technology in so many different ways, to me, you know, this this is the devil incarnate, which is probably a ridiculous position to take. But, you know, I, it's it's sort of like when you're making investments and somebody's trying to talk you into buying something or, or buying some stock or getting into some kind of investment vehicle. And my rule has always been, if I don't understand it, I'm not going to do it. You know, I hire people to give me advice, but ultimately, if I don't understand it, I'm not going to do it. And I feel the same way about AI. I, I am not like your professor in Montreal. I am not like the brilliant professor James Grimmelman, who gave a lecture for us here at the Solar Center back in October, who's both a computer scientist and a lawyer and understands all this. I don't understand it. And it's really uh, a Pandora's box, I think. There are certainly positive things that can come from AI. I mean, I've heard of examples of it, but there is no doubt in my mind that from a journalistic perspective, the journalism industry has not figured this out. And to a great extent are just putty in the hands of ChatGPT and other kinds of uh, large language models and machine learning uh, (laughs) toys. Um, and, you know, it's, it's without mixing too many metaphors, um, it's really like the Sorcerer's Apprentice. They're going to start using it, and they're not going to know what they get into. It'll be over their heads. And as you've said, we've already seen this happen. And it's, it's you know, it may not be an existential threat to mankind, but it is an existential threat, I think, to credible journalism. Yeah, be careful what you wish for, right? Uh, so, so let's look at this. And let me ask you then to don your media ethics professor's Cape and position, and uh, so Sports Illustrated is the uh, is the so the cover child on this story now with fake stories by non-existing humans. They're trying to slough it off as being a third-party mess, but and Sports Illustrated really isn't what it used to be. It used to be a really great sports um, magazine. I, I don't even pay attention to it anymore. It's really slipped that badly, but but it's it's in the news. So what do you make of that? And then what do your what do your students make of what's what's being said about all this? Well, I think as you as for you and many people, sadly, Sports Illustrated has become irrelevant because it comes out so rarely and it's it's full of so much really garbage by their standards and mine. You know, as as you know, specifically, what generated all of this is that um, these fake articles written by fake people were primarily what we call e-commerce content. They were, the most infamous example was uh, this totally ridiculous AI-generated articles about volleyballs. And you'd think, why is Sports Illustrated writing about volleyballs? And the answer is because they wanted to sell them later on down the line um, because they're now part of this 
you know, twice uh, passed along consortium, um, which has, um, you know, as, as its bottom line, trying to increase its bottom line. And they don't care about journalism ethics. They don't even know what that means. And I think it's important to note that putting the journalism aside and just thinking of sort of the strategic communication side of this, this reminds me of the discussions you and I had years ago about so-called native advertising, where real journalists wrote articles about products and so forth in, in a way that looked like it was independent, but in fact, they were being paid by the advertisers to write these articles. And it was a highly debated topic in uh, journalistic circles, in media ethics circles, and even by our Federal Trade Commission here in the United States, which regulates false and deceptive advertising. And, and the writers were saying, this isn't advertising. And the FTC said, you know, who are you kidding? Of course it's advertising. So I guess my point is, I think this is just... 2.0 of this debate, and to try to hide behind the idea that, oh, gee, it's just um, AI-generated stuff for what are basically glorified ads, that doesn't really count. Of course it counts. It goes to the heart of transparency. It, it goes to the heart of accountability and certainly the heart of credibility. And if they can't see that, then they deserve to, to cease to exist, in my view. And I don't say that lightly. I don't want to see news organizations go out of business. But if they're essentially an advertising catalog at this point, I really don't care. Yeah, and the machine's doing all the uh, all the writing and all the broadcasting. I think it's voice. I mean, those radio that radio station story really got my attention. So does, does all of the... I'm not laughing because it's funny, but it... It, it, it gets you going in so many different compass uh, point directions at the same time, this, this AI information, these stories. Do you think it actually contributes and feeds the fake news views that we hear in society? I do think so, um, as if we needed more of this. I think there... I mean, let's face it, there are bad actors out there, there are careless people out there who knowingly or inadvertently share falsehoods. But now we're dealing with a an entity that does not think, as you said, it simply processes all the material it's gathered through the various large language model. It spews out a story. Um, you know, famously, it's known to what's called hallucinate, which basically means makes things up. As a lawyer, this is becoming a big issue in the legal profession because people are filing legal pleadings that have fake legal citations in them for cases that don't even exist. Um, it's a similar problem, obviously, in journalism. And if you already have a public that is disposed to think that the media make things up um, to fit a particular narrative, this just plays into it all the more. It, I mean, we are, we are so lazy, so careless, so unaware that we will use something like uh, ChatGPT to generate stories without knowing or caring whether it's accurate or not. I mean, th this is horrible. I, as I said, existential threat to journalism as I see it because it simply plays into the idea that the news media should not be trusted uh, for a whole variety, variety of reasons, and this is just the latest one. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's appalling and, and really scary to me going forward. Yeah, we already have millions of people who will see something on social media, and because they agree with what they see and hear and read, that makes it fact. 
It doesn't make it an opinion because they agree with it. It makes it a fact. And that's a, that's a deep concern because then if you're exposed to an, an, an ever-increasing AI reality, then, yeah, you could be manipulated easily as a consumer. What are your students saying? Well, I think I would say it splits into two parts. In terms of the students, in terms of you know wanting to get through assignments quickly, not so much in journalism, but in other areas, they love ChatGPT. And it doesn't matter how much we warn them about how inaccurate it can be and how stilted it is in terms of the way it writes. Anybody that's looking to cut a corner, they're going to go to chat GPT unless they're explicitly ordered not to. But on the other hand, I think the journalism students also recognize that the profession they're hoping to enter is already in peril and that if they're going to embrace chat GPT, they may also embrace the idea that they will have no jobs going forward. As I mean, as you said in the Sports Illustrated example, one of the reasons this is happening is because Sports Illustrated has cut its staff so drastically. Same thing with USA Today. Same thing with any number of media outlets that are struggling with this and trying to figure out how to harness this technology in a way that doesn't basically mean that they're selling their souls. So I think, at least in the journalism school, there's definitely uh, a mixed set of views about ChatGPT. Yeah, we, we can't ever adopt the, uh, the attitude, Jane, that, oh, they'll never notice. They, they'll never notice. They, they're already on, the, on social media all the time. They're on the Internet, on search engines. They just go, they being the, all of us, the euphemistic they, um, they'll never notice because they're already, uh, they've already bought into, uh, you know, Google and, and, uh, and X, which is owned by that other guy, whose name I couldn't remember. Um, Musk, yeah. Mr. Musk. Mr. Mr. Musk. And uh, so, so the the attitude could be, oh well, the, the, nobody, nobody will notice, nobody, nobody will care, or even worse, nobody will care. And I think there there is some truth to that, but. Now, one of the things I try to tell my students is, you know, what you have to offer to the world is credibility, you know, painstaking fact-checking, um, accuracy, and let's face it, whether you're in broadcast or print media, good writing, you know, good analysis, yeah. all of which ChatGPT is terrible at. Yeah. So, again, don't sell yourself short by using these tools. It's, it's just lazy. You know, I, uh, I, don't, I don't toot my own horn, horn, horn in this program. But you talk about getting ready, getting prepared, do, do what you need to do, do your due diligence, do your, do, your, do your research, respect your listeners in my case. I started working on this program that airs at 2.05 p.m. Eastern time and then different time zones across the country. I started working on it at 2.45 this morning. That's when I started on it. And uh, that's what it takes. You just have to be, you have to make the commitment that you're going to learn what you're talking about not insult your listeners, provide, provide my own perspective, which sometimes gets fired at, which is all right. But that's what it takes. And if you just feed some, you know, information into a, into a, into a, a machine learning thing, and that's what you're going to get back. You'll get back what the machine learning thing figures based on the parameters it's been programmed by, what it ought to offer you. Professor Kirtley, it's always a pleasure. Thank you so very much for today. Thank you, Jane. It has been a real pleasure for me, Roy, and, and please do take care. You said I was in my early 40s With a lot of life before me When a moment came that stopped me on a dime I spent most of the next days Looking at the x-rays 
Talking about the options And talking about the sweet time I asked him when it sank in That this might really be the real end How's it hit you when you get that kind of news? Man, what'd you do? And he said I went skydiving I went Rocky Mountain climbing I went 2.7 seconds On a full name When men ignore health warnings, and in this case, symptoms of prostate health issues, it can and does lead to metastasized prostate cancer if you ignore it long enough. Metastasized prostate cancer is immediately classified as stage four, and that's my reality, diagnosed in February of this year. I actually talked about the stage four aspect of it for the first time yesterday. There are remarkable and effective, very new, and significantly life-extending medical treatments available, with more in the pipeline. Now, for Todd Seals, and you'll find him at toddseals63.blogspot.com, at age 42, diagnosed with stage 4 metastatic prostate cancer, and given just months to live, this was well before the newest drugs became available. 17 years later, Todd is very much alive. And while the cancer remains a threat, Todd Seals has become a much-talked-about and written-about survivor, motivator, as well as contributor to U.S. World and News Report. I had an opportunity to get to know Todd, then I spoke with him. On Thursday, we recorded the conversation, and I want you to hear what went on. It's going to take up most of this hour. It's not all, it's not all dark. There's a lot of laughter, a lot of humor in this as well. Have a listen. Todd, firstly, it's uh, really important that you're on the air with me on on this radio program. You and I, I think, have become friends, good friends, over the last couple of months, certainly weeks. We've had lots of personal conversations, long conversations on the phone, and I thank you for everything that you've done for me. And I know that our listeners, particularly the men who are struggling with prostate cancer or metastasized prostate cancer, are going to get a lot out of this. Um, you and I are living with the same prostate cancer issues, metastasis, and at stage four. My listeners have he- are hearing this for the first time, that my cancer is at stage four. Uh, you, were, you were given months, only months to live in 2007, and you are 42 years of age. What were your symptoms before the diagnosis? How, how, did, you, how, how did you find out? Oh, well, you know, at 42, uh, you're, you're never really looking you know, for, uh, for prostate cancer. I, I mean, I thought it was an old man's disease. Uh, I was wrong, <laughs> but, um, you know, in hindsight, I can say, yeah, there were, there were subtle side effects. Um, but nothing that you'd really pick right up on, um, as, as being an issue. I mean, other than, than age, um, I would have a weak urine stream, particularly in the mornings while I'm 42 years old. I'm kind of used to that anyway. Uh, it wasn't until I started urinating blood that I realized that I had an issue. Um, I mean, yeah, I, 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 I'm a mechanic, uh, or I was a mechanic. Uh, I, I have, you know, I have to be crawling into really tight positions. So, you know, I developed sciatica about a year prior to that. And, uh, and as it turns out, that was a symptom because once I started treatment, the pain went away, but 
you know, you just don't know. And, and so you have to, you have to be aware of your own, your own health, I guess. You have to be in tune with your body and, and listen to it. And as guys, we're, we're really prone to just shrugging stuff off. We never even give it a thought, you know? Yep. I go to work with bloody knuckles and stitches, and, it, and, it, and it's okay. So uh, we need to, in one aspect, be more like women in, in the aspect that we need to listen to our bodies. Yes, we do. You know, I did the same thing. I've mentioned this on the air. I've spoken about this on the air. Well, I had a urine um, stream that was getting weaker and weaker, and I just wrote it off as being you know, part of aging and made all sorts of excuses, didn't bother to have it checked out. And the next thing I know, I've got this um, prostate cancer and metastasis going on. Uh, how, did you, uh, how did you react to the news when they, when they told you? Be, I, I know because we've talked and I read the lengthy piece about you in Men's Health magazine in 2019. But what do you, what do you remember about your reaction to the news? And they particularly only give you months to live. Uh, well, God, it's been a long time. <laughs> no, that's good. I mean, that's good. That's the, the, there's some context to that. You know, if you can get to the stage where you say, geez, I don't really don't remember. It's been a long time. We want to hear that from, from, from cancer patients. It's been a long time. It's been a long time. It's been a long time. Been 17 years. Fantastic. Um, 17 years that, I, that I've lived with, you know, metastatic prostate cancer. And for the last, uh, 12 years, it's been uh, uh, hormone refractory, uh, uh, you know, um, whatever you want to call it. Um, there's, it has so many different names, but basically, you know, my cancer no longer responded to hormone therapy. But to get back to your original question, I think I was like most men. I was, I was in shock. I was in disbelief. Um, you know, normally you get called into a doctor's office and uh, they sit you down and, and they tell you what's what. And, and, you know, at least you're sitting down. <laughs> at least you have your doctor there. Yeah. Um, I found out on a phone call. Oh, my. Uh, I was actually at work when my primary care provider called me and, and he let me know. He said, but, you know, to, to his you know, not to discredit him because he is an amazing doctor, but we knew something was wrong. Something was seriously wrong. Uh, I had nine months previous to that, I had gone to the hospital because I had pneumonia and they had done a chest x-ray, you know, standard for diagnosing pneumonia. And the, the radiation tech said, or the doctor, after he read the scans, uh, read the screens, the slides, whatever the heck they are. <laughs> he, uh, he said, look, you know, you've got this little nodule here and, and it's a pulmonary, you know, it could be a pulmonary embolism. They're very common, but, um, you really should have it checked, you know, after you've recovered from this bout of pneumonia. And all my male brains heard was, Probably nothing. That's right. Common. I hear pulmonary you. I hear you. Or not pulmonary <laughs> embolism, a nodule, pulmonary yeah. nodule. I yeah. don't want to. I don't want to say it's a blood clot. It was a pulmonary nodule. It sounds sounds common. sounds sounds like something you can just ignore, doesn't it? 
Just for a guy. It sounds like something you probably shouldn't ignore, but you shouldn't. But, but I you, did. but you can because yeah. you're a guy. Yeah. So at that time, I went to my to my doctor um, when I had went in for for uh, for blood in my urine, and it wasn't just a little bit. Um, I, I was urinating blood, and uh, and I told my primary care provider about that event that had occurred. And uh, nine months previous, and he was very angry. He says, "You never had it checked." Oh no, they said it's probably nothing. And so he he sent me for a chest X-ray. Well, when my uh, chest X-ray came back, um, my lungs were covered um, with prostate cancer uh, nodules. Oh my goodness! Um, So you can look at. You can think maybe Chester Cheetah, the, the mascot for Cheetos, um, how he's got all of his spots. Well, that's kind of how my slides look. Oh, and uh, it's for my films. That's how my films looked. And so he sent me down for a blood test. And when it came back, my PSA was over 3,200. Oh, uh, wow. And, and, and so the next oh. um, several months, you know, it was it was just more bad news after more bad news when you do bone scans, CT scans, and and uh, and so you asked me how I felt, um, overwhelmed, yeah, overwhelmed, like um, ripped off. I felt so ripped off. Yeah, I know. I had feeling. just really gotten my life back on track after, uh, well, after uh, after. Personal issues um, basically ended my life in in a lot of aspects. I mean, to be honest, I didn't care for a while if I was to check out or not. Mm-hmm. And but I had just gotten my life together. Um, man, I'd met someone. Uh, I I mean, everything was coming back on track, and uh, and so it was really a good time, except for this diagnosis. But what I didn't realize at the time was this diagnosis was going to be one of the most significant best things that ever happened to me. This diagnosis changed my life. This diagnosis showed me what was important. It showed me that every day is a gift. And and you know when you're when you're immortal like I was a week previous to that, uh, I didn't have a care in the world. I could waste as much time as I wanted to waste. There was always tomorrow, mm-hmm. and then you get this diagnosis, and all of a sudden, maybe you don't have tomorrow. And you look at today and go, God, it's a nice day. You know, and, and you start seeing people differently and you see yourself differently. And I guess I took the advice of Tim McGraw when he wrote the song, Live Like You Were Dying. You know, I was, listen- I, I was listening. Could- I was listening to that song this morning. It's a, it's a great song. Yeah, it is a great I'm never going to get on a bull. I, I'll just tell you that right <laughs> no, now. No, because there you... are only two kinds of crazy, and one of them is getting on a bull. <laughs> Not with an enlarged prostate, you don't get on a bull. <laughs> hey, Todd, uh, I want to talk about the lady who played an amazing part and plays an amazing part in your life in just a second, but your treatment has been complicated. 
And because while medications can turn the cancer docile, which is my case now, it does eventually figure out a way around the blocks the medications put in place. It must have been so difficult to deal with improvement and then the cancer coming back again, different treatments. What was that like for you? Um, wow. You know, the first, I did pretty good for the first, I don't know, four years. I, they started me with ADT2, so androgen deprivation therapy with Lupron and Quesadex, or commonly referred to as bicalutamide. Um, so I, it was standard, it was standard um, treatment for metastatic prostate cancer, mostly because it was all they had at the time. Uh, they had Lupron. There was some, some old treatments out there that, that um, may, may, may or may not have worked, but at the time they didn't really work any better than the Lupron. Um, they would be more like a sidestep. If, if the cancer had found a way around the, the, the androgen blockade, then you could throw a different androgen at it and it would knock it back up, you know, knock it back a step or whatever. But all they had other than that at the time was, uh, was the chemotherapy. So, um, I started with the, with the androgen deprivation and, and it worked really good for three and a half years. And then when it's the cancer, when the PSA started to creep back up again, they took me off of the quesadex. Um, and, and that knocked the cancer back a step as well. Um, 18 months later, it was, it was coming around again. My PSA was rising and I want to think about this for a second. I just want to pause for a second. Um, science had been in the process of, of, of new medications. Um, you know, prostate cancer was getting a lot of attention at the time, uh, both through uh, the Prostate Cancer Research Project and also, uh, you know, through the National Cancer Institute. There was a lot of money being thrown at it. And there were several uh, new treatments that were basically coming out the pipe all at the same time within within a year of each other. And, you know, for prostate cancer medications to have three coming out in a year, that's basically at the same time. Um, Extandes, Itiga, and there was a, there was a, Therapy coming out that was really new. Uh, it was it was different. Uh, it was called Provenge, and it was what they called the first cancer vaccine. And and I guess in the truest sense of the word, yes, it, it, it's a vaccine. Um, but I was intrigued. Uh, cancer had already caused me to change my entire life. Uh, the way I eat, um, the way I, the way I. Uh, approach every day. Um, and, and I had felt good for five years. Now my PSA is climbing up and because Provenge was basically the first one to be, um, FDA approved and Zytiga was real close. I think they were in committee at the time and everybody knew it was going to get approved. Um, I, really wanted to go for Provenge. And I had a hard time getting that medication. Um, 
I had to fight for it, but I believed in it. And, and I, and I just felt like having my immune system fired up and in the fight, um, you know, would probably be paramount to anything that followed. So, um, I fought for it and, and I ultimately, it took like 10 months, but ultimately I was awarded Provence therapy and I received it in May of 2012. Um, so when we were done, when I was done on my, on my final, uh, my final infusion day, uh, <laughs> I bought a boat <laughs> Good for you. I, I told I my love wife, this story. honey, this honey, is I so good. You know, I have to say this, what you're, what you're doing, this conversation we're having now is kind of like the conversations we've had privately. And I find it inspiring living with what I have. And they're telling me, you know, you've got some years. And then we have new meds coming down the pipe, and they'll extend your life beyond that. And I appreciate that. But when you make a decision that goes beyond the time frame that most people would consider reasonable, like, I'm going to buy a boat. Yeah, I have uh, metastatic (laughs) prostate cancer. It's stage four in 2007. They gave me a few months to live. But now I'm buying a boat. I love that story. It's just inspiring. Did you know how to drive a boat? Oh yeah, I'm just I'm just kidding. I'm just joking. Uh, I could just never afford one. Yeah, yeah. And technically, I couldn't afford it, but the bank could. (laughs) You know what? But technically, we have to. We have to give ourselves a reason to live. Yes, sir. Emotion plays a major part. We have to have a reason to live. So, can I stop you right there for a second? Yeah. Because when you say you have to have a reason to live, that makes me want to ask you about your wife. Because I know, I know, I know personally from conversations with you, but please share it with our listeners across this country and beyond. Tell us about your wife. Oh, God, I hate her. <laughs> and, and I mean that really in all jest. Um, Amanda and I had met about a year prior to my diagnosis. And, uh, you know, she was, she was a little younger than me. So I have to admit it, you know, for a while it was like, God, is this weird or not? But it it didn't matter. I mean, I guess age really is just a number. Um, we, it's like we were just two halves of the same coin. Um, we completed each other in, in every way. Um, we were, we were passionate. We were head over heels in love. And by golly, a year later, I, I get diagnosed with this disease and come on, we've got metastatic cancer. We prostate cancer. We know things are going to change. Um, so I was just like, you know, sweetheart, you didn't sign up for this. You know, this isn't going to be a fun ride. You, you can get out. And she wouldn't hear any of it. She, she wouldn't hear a word of it. Um, she went out and she bought me a kayak and then she went out and she bought me a, a, a bicycle. <laughs> she made me use them. <laughs> but the thing is, is, is she was, it was everything I needed yeah. at the time. And, and I didn't even know it, but she did. Yeah. And And she's always just had that intuition where, she knows what I need before I need it. Um, going out 
um, when you're on androgen deprivation, uh, I just call it hormones. So when you're on hormones, things are messed up. I, I mean, it's just messed up. Your, your body doesn't work well. You're tired. My God, you get so tired. Some people deal with severe depression, uh, weight gain, hot flashes, moody uh, mood swings. Uh, God, I mean, I used to be able to uh, watch chick flicks and action movies with equal enthusiasm. I mean, my goodness, <laughs> I was messed up. Oh, man, you're too much. <laughs> she got me out there every day. Let's, Wonderful lady. Let's go for a hike. Let's, let's go for a bicycle ride. Let's, yeah. Let, you know, and this is between, you know, you and your doctors. I recommend finding a really comfortable seat if this is an avenue you want to approach. But, um... You know, she was just, she was crucial, I believe. I believe my wife was crucial in my success to date against this disease because she has daily shown me how beautiful life can be. If only we just open up our eyes and see it. Um, <laughs> seeing the world through my wife's eyes made it all new again. Uh, all it's of that wonderful to hear. You. Yeah. Yeah, it's wonderful so. to hear. I, I know how, from our conversations, how important your wife is to you. Now, another aspect to this is men supporting men. So we are not very good, as we pointed out, at following up on symptoms because we know it's all just temporary. We'll heal ourselves. We don't want to share anything with anybody. I'm okay. Don't bother me. That was my attitude. I'm okay. Don't bother me. I'm fine. But you, <laughs> I wish that was exactly the way I said yeah, it. Yeah, you are. I'm yeah, you are. fine. You're fine. My friend, my friend Cynthia said to me, so she came over to talk to me when I was, I was about three days away from being rushed to the hospital in, in the ER where they didn't think I was going to survive the day. And I, I, during our conversation, she said, you said to me, I don't remember any of this, but she said, I said, why are you questioning me? Why are you in, in what's the inquisition about? And, and I had gone, I had gotten so far that I wasn't even aware anymore of what was going on, but I didn't have the wherewithal to ask for help, Todd. And that's what's, what a lot of guys find themselves in. But you've been telling me about a group of men who've gotten together, you found out about, and it's a, it's a support group uh, of men. And you get together on, on an annual trip, and I'm going on the next one. So how, <laughs> I know you're going to New Orleans, and so I'm going to New Orleans with you. What's the, <laughs> <laughs> How important is the male support um, availability when you have this disease? Or I would imagine any other serious disease that is threatening your life. Um, well, you know, we need a community. Um, and we don't know it because most of the time we pretend that we can just be the lone wolf. But... Uh, we we need a community. Um, nobody can understand what they're, what we as men are going through during the course of dealing with this disease better than men who who are going through exactly what you're going through. And 
and are willing to look at it with humor and humility. Um, it's, it's paramount that you have that in your life. You, without it, you can go crazy. Um, I actually, you know, I found these guys just Googling at work one night when I had some downtime. I was on graveyard shift. It was two in the morning and I typed into Google, how long am I going to live with the stage four prostate cancer? Because they'd already told me I had a year or less. And, uh, and this, this forum, this, uh, this patient to patient forum popped up on the screen, uh, in the search engine, uh, healingwell.com prostate cancer. And I thought, well, you know, I mean, all the other stuff I've read is negative. Maybe I'll just click on this. And I typed in, how long am I going to live with metastatic prostate cancer? And I had like 10 replies in five minutes. And all of them were like positive and uplifting. And man, sorry you, uh, sorry that you've got this disease, but man, we're really glad you found it. And these guys became an extended portion of my family. Mm-hmm. Um, and we one somebody said, "Hey, we should all get together. We should meet." And it it happened, and it was amazing. And our wives go. I, I mean, they have a ladies' day, and and uh, we hold a meeting. It's, so we just get together. It used to be twice a year, but some some of us are getting older, and that's that's not a bad thing. Um, no, it isn't. So it, it, it's, it's annual now, and typically it's one year in New York and then one year in, uh, in, uh, in uh, New Orleans. Okay. Or actually, uh, it's closer to uh, Baton Rouge. But well, um, it's, it's a little place called Burley. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's not a very big place. <laughs> but, you know, we spend a few days in New Orleans when we go down there, and... Uh, and then we go to our get together. Um, it's called GFMPH. And if you ever want to know what that stands for, it's good for my prostate health. And it goes something like this. Gosh, honey, I really think a boat would be good for my prostate health <laughs> because if you have to have this disease, you might as well get something out of it. <laughs> You are just, you know what? I just feel like I have a brother in arms. Honest to God, I really do. I'm so glad I met you. Uh, I'm going to meet you in person in Nolens next year now. Todd, you've said to me, keep your sense of humor. Keep laughing. Keep enjoying life. And you do that. You're a musician, a hunter, a fisherman, a boater, an adventurer. So that's so critically important. You and I have had those conversations. So what is your message? This is my final question for you. What's your message to men who are experiencing prostate health issues, like not being able to urinate properly or at all, which was my case for far too long, or men who are dealing with other symptoms for other illnesses and are doing nothing about it? What's the message from you? You were given months to live, what, 17 years ago? What's the message? My, my message to men would be to listen to your body and realize that, let me rephrase this. Men, doggone it. This is, this is what I was 
this 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 kind of happens to me sometimes. I think I call it Lupron brain. But my message to men would be: listen to your body, and and see the doctor. Um, men are getting cancer younger, prostate cancer younger, and when you're diagnosed at a younger age, when you still think you're Superman, uh, it's usually more aggressive. It, it spreads faster. It's harder to treat. But if it's caught early, it's it's ninety nine point nine percent curable, or some, you know, if it's just caught early enough, they can. You're very curable. But once it's got to this point, once you haven't listened to your body, once you've let things go, and you get to this point, well. Thank God it's, they've made it into, for many men, they've made it into a chronic disease where we can still live a long time and hopefully live a good life. But listen to your body early. Get cured while you still can. Yeah. Todd Seals, we're lucky to have you. I'm lucky to have you in my life. And all the men listening to this program are lucky to have you in their lives. And I'll tell them where to get started. If you go to menshealth.com, and you look up uh, the title, How Todd Seals Overcame a Prostate Cancer Death Sentence. That's where I began. That's how I found Todd. How Todd Seals Overcame a Prostate Cancer Death Sentence. It's a tremendous piece. Todd, thank you very much. We'll talk again, you and I, privately. And uh, book me in New Orleans for next year. I'm going to be there, my friend. I'm looking forward to it. Um, can I plug my blog? Yes, please do. Okay, I, I, I do write a blog. Um, I haven't been active for a while uh, simply because I've grown complacent. I mean, let's face it, things are going well. Um, but it's at uh, uh, toddseal63.blogspot.com, and it's living with stage four prostate cancer. Um, I've been keeping, keeping it for a few years now, and, uh, and you know, I, it's good that I don't have anything to write about these days. But there is a lot of information there. Okay. Todd Seal 63 at blogspot.com. Got it. We'll talk soon. Thank you, Todd, for today. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.